Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. We're in Joshua chapter 10 this morning. Joshua chapter 10. Uh, part 6 of this series that we've been doing called Journey of Faith as we do kind of a jet tour through the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 10. Let me give you a little bit of historical context for the passage we're going to study this morning. So far in our study we have seen both victory and defeat in the life of Israel to this point. Uh, from the high of the victory at Jericho, uh, the low of Ai, to repentance, even to compromise with the Gibeonites, as we saw in last week's study. Yet the Israelites would continue to move forward in faith. And God had repeatedly told Israel not to be involved with the people of Canaan, not to make alliances with them. And with the exception of these, these Gibeonite folks we talked about last week, who had actually tricked the Israelites into an alliance, uh, they held fast to that instruction from the Lord. They did not have involvement with any of the other uh, Canaanites. They made no other alliances. But since they were not making alliances with these people that, that occupied Canaan, battles ensued. Battles to purify the land. The land which God had commanded the Israelites to inhabit. In fact, if you go back a little bit, uh, Leviticus chapter 8 actually names the nations there and declares that these nations are defiling the land. And that left unchecked, they would infect the Israelites and ruin the land. Now, we see with the, uh, with the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see with the defeat of King Sion and King Og of the Amorites, those should have served as opportunities for the peoples of Canaan to seek God in repentance. But they didn't. They refused to turn from their unbelief, refused to turn from their wicked ways. And, you know, these are the sorts of people that the Israelites are actually dealing with as they work to take the, uh, the promised land. These are the enemies of God. And because of their unrepentance, God's judgment would fall on them. Now, you know, before you and I get all uppity and start uh, wagging a finger of condemnation to God, scolding Him, you know, saying that He's only a wrathful God, we need to remember something. God is holy. God is just. He is righteous. And He cannot tolerate sin. Because sin destroys people. It alienates people from Him. And yet it's this same God, the one that ordered judgment on the peoples of Canaan, He's also the loving Father who lavished His grace and His mercy upon humankind by sending His own Son, Jesus, to the cross that we might receive the message of salvation. But since these people of Canaan were unrepentant, Joshua was commanded to systematically take the land. Now, you've heard all this and you're probably thinking to yourself, all right, Eric, what in the world does that actually mean to me? in the here and now, in 21st century Texarkana. Well, you know, like the Israelites in the then and there, we Christians in the here and now, we've got to move forward in faith too. You know, our churches are not to be content to just kind of sit back and do business as usual. I mean, we need to stop simply coming to church and start being the church 
Do you know what I mean? We can't continue to rest on past victories. We must move forward. Likewise, we can't be paralyzed by past defeats either. We need to move forward in faith, personally and corporately, as the body of Christ here at Beach Street, with the mission to take the gospel to the lost. But how does that happen? Well, just as the book of Joshua taught us this strategy for, for victory that we've seen so far, the solution for repentance that we've studied so far, it now teaches us in this passage how to move forward in faith. So let's set the stage here. We're in Joshua chapter 10. Here in Joshua chapter 10, upon, uh, we learn that upon hearing of the defeats at Jericho and Ai by the Israelites, and also because of the Israelites' alliance with these people uh, from Gibeon, that five of the Amorite kings have started getting really nervous. In fact, verse 2 says they were greatly alarmed. And so these five kings actually joined forces with each other to attack Gibeon. Now when that happened, naturally Joshua receives a call for help from his unlikely allies, and the Lord uses Joshua to come to the aid of the Gibeonites. And as we're going to discover in the text, God actually employed some supernatural, miraculous things to accomplish victory. And so that really brings us to the big idea behind the whole passage. I think the one thought that I want you to take home today and apply to your own lives is this, that the Lord of lights fights for us. That's the big idea. The Lord of lights fights for us. So three ways that we move forward in faith that we observe from the text today. The first one persistent prayer. Look at verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 says, Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us, for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. None of them will be able to stand against you. So naturally, the Gibeonites, they're scared. They call to the Israelites for aid, saying, come quickly and save us. But I think one thing that's really interesting here is that yet again, in the Joshua story, we have the Lord's instructions to not be afraid. How many times have we seen this already? You know, and the promise that no one would be able to stand against them, as he says in verse 8. And of course, by saying this, God's also given them the green light to go ahead and rally to the Gibeonites' defense. But I want you to note something here in in verse 6. Joshua was again at Gilgal. Now, I'm thinking this place must have been important because it's mentioned several times in chapter 10. In fact, it's mentioned multiple times in in the Old Testament. But, I mean, what's the deal? What is so significant about this place called Gilgal? Four things I want you to notice that I think are also applicable to us. First of all, Gilgal, Gilgal and I, I beg you not to try to say that three times fast because you will, you will get your tongue tangled. Gilgal was a place of memorial for the Israelites. It was to remind them of what God had already done in their lives. At Gilgal, after miraculously crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, as you will recall, the Israelites actually set up 12 memorial stones that they had taken from the Jordan River, representing the 12 tribes. And these would serve as a reminder to the Israelites 
and all of their descendants of the power of their God and how he had allowed them to cross the Jordan River, how he had parted the waters and allowed them to cross on dry ground just as a generation before their forefathers had done at the Red Sea. And we read about that in Joshua chapter 4. So we see that Gilgal is a place of memorial, but it's also a place of consecration, a place of change. Now in the Israelites' culture, consecration, it was basically this. It was dedicating someone or something uh, for a specific holy purpose. And it was actually at Gilgal that the Israelites were circumcised and celebrated their first Passover in the Promised Land. We read about that in Joshua chapter 5. And the children of those who had wandered in the desert all of those years had not yet been circumcised. So, and so it was time for them to take the sign of the covenant and be set apart as God's people. In fact, that's what that word holy means. It means to be set apart. So Gilgal was a place of memorial. It was a place of consecration. Gilgal was also a place of worship. In fact, several hundred years later, Gilgal still served as a place of worship uh, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. It's also the place where King Saul was uh, crowned the first king of Israel. We see that in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 10 and 11. So Gilgal was a place of worship. Gilgal was a place of prayer. It's a place where Joshua had communed with God. It's the place where God had given him direction. God had revealed his plans to Joshua. And we know that Joshua was a man of prayer. Because a little bit later on in verse 14 it says that the Lord fought for Israel because the Lord listened to a man. So by this time, you know, Joshua, he's been walking long enough with God. He has persisted long enough in prayer that he's learned that he must proceed with the direction of God. And because of Joshua's humility, because of his willingness to seek God's counsel, God assured Israel that they would have victory over these five Amorite kings that were mentioned in verse 3. Now I find this interesting because it's a pretty stark contrast from what we were looking at last week. The events of chapter 9, when the men of Israel did not seek the Lord's counsel and allowed themselves to be duped by these Gibeonites. But I think there's a point of application for us here that we find in all this. That when we come up against challenges, the best way for us to move forward in faith is memorial. Remember what God has done. Consecration dedicate ourselves to his kingdom purposes worship give him the worship he rightly deserves and to be committed to serious prayer and petition to God because he has promised his blessing to those who seek his face a guy named Robert Benson wrote a book called in constant prayer and he said this, I am increasingly convinced that if the church is to live and actually be alive, one of the reasons, maybe the most important and maybe the only reason, will be because we pray the prayer that Christ himself prayed when he walked among us and now longs to pray through us. It will be because we choose to no longer be among the ones who silence the prayer that Christ, through his body, prays to the Father. 
It will be because we make sure that the wave of prayer that sustained the church for all this time does not stop when it is our turn to say it each day. It will be because we answer the ancient call to pray without ceasing. What is that prayer he's talking about? Not my will, but your will be done. Be honest with yourself, Christian. When was the last time that you were able to candidly, sincerely pray as Jesus prayed, not my will, Lord, but your will be done? See, one of the ways that we as God's children move forward in faith is through consistent and persistent prayer. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the passage where he, he deals with the matter of spiritual warfare. He says in verse 18, to pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. See, there's a good reason for being persistent in our prayer. In the foreword to Tom Ellis' book called A Passion for Prayer, the late Stephen Olford wrote this. He said, the need for persistence is designed to affect such a change in us that we conform to the character and the will of the God who eagerly waits to hear our cry. Now, we talked a bit about persistent prayer in last week's message when we were in Joshua chapter 9, so I'm not going to belabor the point. I will say this, if you're really interested in studying this matter of persistent prayer and how it applies to the Christian life, come see me afterwards. I have two additional copies of this book left called Faint Not, Powerful Prayer Along the Broken Road. Chapter 5 is all about persistent prayer. Come to me after church and it's yours. All right, so moving on. In addition to persistent prayer, I think the second way that we move forward in faith is through extended effort. I want you to look at verse 9 here. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. So this wasn't simply a matter of prayer, though that's obviously where things need to begin, always with prayer. But following this petition from the Gibeonites, Joshua and his men were on the move all night long. Now, beyond demonstrating that Joshua was a man of his word and that he was obedient to God, what does that show us? Well, obviously it shows us that he extended tremendous effort in service to the Lord. But what really gave him the strength to march through the night? Well, that, that, that's a pretty good question. Now, Joshua was wise to avoid the pitfall of attempting this feat in his own strength, one of the ways he was able to do this was by spending time with God, by trusting in God's plan, because Joshua's hope was in God. But at the same time, he also realized he couldn't just sit back and wait for things to happen for the Gibeonites. Action was required. And he knew that he and his men had a role to play in God's plans. So they didn't wait. They moved. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, okay, just a minute, Eric. What about Isaiah 40, 31? What it says about waiting on the Lord. Aren't we supposed to wait on the Lord? It is true. And you know this from your own experience. It is often true in the Christian life that there are times when we must wait 
on God's timing. Situations that require tremendous patience. Situations that cause us to pray that prayer, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. Well, let me ask you then, I mean, what does the Bible mean in Isaiah 40, 31 when it says to wait on the Lord? They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, it says. All right, then, what does that mean? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? In this context, waiting is a demonstration of trust, of hope, because our hope is in the Lord, and it's not an idle hope. I mean, we don't just, you know, sit around twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing until God does His thing. You see, waiting actually means working. Waiting means serving. As Jesus said in John 9, 4, we must do the works of Him who sent me. Because God's got plan for us. Big plans. And so we demonstrate our hope in His Word and our trust in His provision, His protection, and His power by making the necessary effort to accomplish those things that God has instructed us to do. Now, if that still doesn't make sense, let me put it another way. When you go to the restaurant after church on Sunday, who serves you? It will be a waiter or waitress, or you know, if you're part of the politically correct crowd, it's a, you know, their wait staff or servers. Uh, but think about this. You know, the, the wait staff at, at Johnny B's or Amigo Wands or Olive Garden or Cracker Barrel, they don't just sit around idle, do they? Your servers are constantly moving, making a dash between you and the kitchen, or making a dash between you and their other customers, making a dash between you and the register. They're not idle. They're tending to the needs of their customers. If I can be a little bit blunt, often feeling slighted because the after church crowd is pretty notorious for being rude uh, to servers and really not tipping very well. So Beach Street, please don't be those people. So waiting actually means working. It means serving. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, we shouldn't be busy just for the sake of busyness. Well, I've got to get busy and start serving you, Lord. Well, first, you need to seek His counsel and understand exactly how you're supposed to be serving. Follow His leadership. Be obedient to the specific calling that He's given you. And then, like Joshua, extend your best efforts. Now, at the same time, when we do that, we have to acknowledge that our strength our effort alone, that is not enough to get her done. You see, victory for believers comes when we depend on God in prayer, when we prepare ourselves, and when we extend the effort necessary, effort under His wisdom, His direction, and in His strength. You see, we should pray and trust as if everything depends on God, but we prepare and work as if everything depends on us. You know, trusting that God is going to take the meager loaves and fishes of my efforts and multiply them into something that will make His name great. Something that will enact His will and His plan in my life. 
Of course, that begs the question, why don't more believers make the effort? Well, for some, they simply don't have the desire. There's something wrong with their wanter that needs adjustment. They're not in right fellowship with God because they don't want the things that He wants. And so they're not willing to pray, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. So for some, it's, it's a lack of willpower. For others, it's a lack of God's provided power. In fact, that's the third thing I want you to notice from the text. In addition to persistent prayer and extended effort, the third way that we move forward in faith is through provided power. Look at verse 12. This is fascinating stuff. Verse 12, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon over the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Folks, this was nothing short of a colossal display of might, of God's power. Now, there's something you need to understand about God's power and the way that He puts it to work. It works several different ways. I mean, first of all, we see in this instance how God's power works for us. Now, I'm going to chase just a little bit of a rabbit here, but it's actually very relevant to what we're talking about, so I'm asking you to stay with me, okay? Now, if you start to nod off, I'm not going to come back there and thump you in the back of the head. We don't do that here. But this is pretty fascinating stuff. What exactly happened in verse 13? The text says that God caused the sun to stop in the middle of the sky and delay its setting for almost a full day. So what's up with this sun-standing-still business? Well, the short version is God miraculously provided about 24 hours of light to aid Israel in destroying their enemy, the Amorites. And, of course, the skeptics, you know, they, uh, they want to write off the, the supernatural nature of the Bible, and so they scoff at the possibility of such a thing. Now, some people are going to claim it was, a, it was a localized phenomenon in which God allowed light to remain in Gibeon. You know, kind of like uh, the ninth plague in Egypt, uh, the plague upon the Egyptians in Exodus 10, when the Hebrews actually had light, but all the Egyptians were plunged into darkness. Of course, the problem with that is that the text does actually seem to indicate an actual change of the earth's rotation, since it says the sun did not set. Now, other people are going to argue that, oh, the language in this passage, it's poetic. You know, it shouldn't be taken literally. But you know what? Applying a figurative interpretation to a very difficult Bible passage really doesn't solve that passage's difficulties. Some people are going to claim, well, it was a, an eclipse-like event. Well, eclipses only, they only last a few minutes. This happened almost, you know, it lasted almost a whole day. So, I think the best explanation is for us to simply take Joshua 10 at face value. Our 
omnipotent God performed a stupendous miracle causing the sun to delay its, its setting. Which to be more precise, it means God stopped the rotation of the earth. Now of course the naysayers, they're going to go ape over such a suggestion. They object based on the, the physics of motion. Oh, the laws of physics say that's an impossibility. Yeah, that's kind of the point. It is impossible. That's what makes it so amazing. Because our mighty God made the impossible possible. That's why it's called a miracle. Besides, isn't God the one who actually created the laws of physics? He created this vast universe. He fine-tuned the cosmos, including planet Earth. And He established all of its natural laws. So any being that powerful is perfectly capable of compensating for any complications that are caused by the, a pause in the Earth's rotation. So no, we may not have a scientific exclamation, explanation of, of how God performed this miracle, but it doesn't matter. Because God knew exactly what He was doing. The God of lights was fighting for His people. In fact, I kind of think this was God's way of showing off a little bit. Think about this. Israel's enemies, they actually worshipped the sun and the moon. And so the arrest of the motion of these heavenly bodies and this extended period of light had not only demonstrated that the Amorite gods were bogus, but it helped Israel clearly affirm the Lord God as the one true God. The Amorites' own gods were powerless to aid their cause as the God of Israel moved heaven and earth to grant His people the victory. So the text says that they were running out of daylight, so God intervened. Pretty simple. Joshua prayed, and God supernaturally provided the light necessary for Joshua's army to win its battle. He lengthened the day and shortened the night, all because the people of God sought His counsel and followed His plan. Now let me ask you this. Don't you think that if God was willing to exercise His power for Joshua, then we, the body of Christ, can also count on God's empowerment if we seek His counsel, and if we're obedient to His instruction? You know, the answer you're looking for is yes. We can rely on Him to move on our behalf. Remember the big idea. The Lord of lights fights for us. It's a guy named Lee Eckloff, a longtime pastor in, in Illinois, frequent contributor to Christianity Today magazine. He wrote this a few years back. He said, Dill, Dill Rummel, a woman from the church where I pastor, once told me the story of how a colleague of hers was hospitalized for 10 weeks. Her name was Colleen, and she had broken her back in two places. Despite the doctor's efforts, her back wasn't healing. Dill was very busy, but she knew God wanted her to visit Colleen. In fact, she felt God wanted her to lay hands on Colleen and pray for healing. Something that was pretty out there for Dill at the time. When Dill finally got around to going to the hospital, she and Colleen chatted for quite some time about real estate and, and everyone that they knew. 
Now, over the course of her visit, Dill eventually summoned up the courage to say, would you like for me to lay hands on you and pray for you? Colleen readily agreed. Dill told me, I, I didn't feel warmth dribbling down through me or anything, but I did what God wanted me to do. About three weeks later, the doorbell rang, and there was Colleen standing on Dill's front porch. She explained that the day after Dill had visited her, the doctor sent Colleen to the lab for some x-rays. They showed where the two breaks had been, but they were completely healed. Church, I share this story with you simply to illustrate this, too, this truth. And the truth that, that God is still in the miracle business. But you see, not only does God's power work for us, God's power can also work through us, just as it worked through Dill's prayers for her friend Colleen. You see, God's provided power is readily available to you. And he rejoices to put it to work in your lives. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. that says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. You know what that power is? It's the power of his Holy Spirit living within you. God desired to use Israel to bless the nations. But guess what? He desires to work through you to change the world too. Now stick this in your, in your oven and bake it for just a minute. This lengthened day that we talked about, that we just read about here in Joshua 10, obviously that was indeed unlike anything we've ever seen. But think about this. In Joshua's mind, the greater miracle may actually just have been that God listened to him and answered such an amazing prayer. And folks, this isn't just, you know, uh, pie in the sky tough stuff that, that God desired only to do for the Israelites. I mean, he desires to work through us too to accomplish wondrous things if we will persist in prayer, if we will extend our effort, if we will call upon his provided power. The Bible says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can stand against us? The God who fought for Israel enables us to face everything that comes our way. By his power, we extend our efforts. By his power, we move forward in faith. By his power, we overcome. Paul said in Romans 8, 37, that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Persistent prayer, extended effort, God's provided power. These are all keys to helping us, both individually and corporately as a church, moving forward, to help us move forward in faith. But you know what? The ultimate victory, that's found in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know what that is? That's victory over sin, over death, over hell. The Bible says that's not a victory that we can achieve on our own. But you know what? That's okay. Because if you have chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ, victory over sin and death are already yours. He's already given those to you. You see, if you've never made that decision to trust Christ as your Savior, wouldn't you like to stand victorious both in this life and in the next? Jesus can make that possible. He can make you an overcomer. It's the gift that he offers you. And to receive it is pretty simple. The only thing required of you is repent, believe, and receive. Repent. We acknowledge that we're sinners. God, I know I've done things that displease you. And I ask you to forgive me for my disobedience. And I'm changing my mind about the way I've been living. That's what the word repent means. Then we believe. We believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he took my place. He paid the price for my sin. But then he rose again on the third day, victorious. We trust that. We believe that in our hearts. And then the last thing is we simply receive. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will, will be saved. Now he said in Romans 6, 23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a gift that Jesus was dying to give you. Forgiveness of sin, salvation, eternal life. Those are all things that can be yours today if you'll simply place your trust in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.